Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and the show's producer, Nate the Great Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey, Nate. Hey, buddy. Dude, I'm excited for today's lesson, today's dive. Today's dive? Yeah, dive. Ready. What, what are we doing? We're, we're going into Egyptian history. Can't wait. And then we're finishing with one of the greatest prophetic events of all time. Oh. Oh yeah. Strong that's, finish. That's, that is a that's a pretty that's a pretty bold statement there, I buddy. Oh right. I, I stand by it. All right, let's do it. Okay. So going back to well, let's um let me let me let me start by telling a story and then and then let's relate that to to this Exodus account and then let's go into Egyptian history and see if we can't put all these pieces together. As as you know, I've I've been involved with some of the relief efforts trying to help people in Ukraine. In particular, there are some orphanages where there were children that were in the process of being adopted. And then when the war broke out, they couldn't finalize the adoption process. But they have homes, they have parents where they need to go, and the parents have reached out to the Exodus organization and asked for their help and assistance in helping them finalize this process and get these kids out. Initially, as we had people go into these orphanages and ask for them to let the particular children go, the directors have had a hard time with that, having these foreigners coming outside and, and maybe they're looking at them, maybe these are Russian spies or maybe these people we don't trust, or, or maybe there's some nationalistic pride involved in the sense that we can't let these people go because it's somewhat paramount to admitting defeat, like our, our nation's defeated. And also early on, I think you had a lot of groups going in with, with vests that pretended to be part of an organization that weren't, that just honestly trafficked kids and the, the, the orphanage directors are on high alert. And in any case, whatever the situation is or whatever the, 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 the excuse is for the directors, they have not been willing to let these children go. So we've had to, to result to getting local military help, having the local forces come in and speak their language and, and say, this is martial law, we are in a crisis situation, we need you to let these people go, and having them speak for us rather than just us speak for, for, for us is our next best hope at trying to get some of these kids out and, and saving them. The reason I tell that story is when we look at Moses and Mar- Aaron, Marin, Aaron coming in to talk to Pharaoh, God is going to be trying to relate to Egypt in a very personal way and kind of act like that local resource. And and let me explain. Let's go to the history of Egypt, uh, mythology in particular. Osiris was this, this great god that ruled over Egypt for a long time, and he had a brother named Seth, and Seth at some point grew jealous and had Osiris murdered. Not only did he have him murdered, but he had him chopped up in many pieces and distributed all throughout the land. And that was supposedly the end of Osiris. Isis, Osiris's wife, was very saddened by the event, obviously. <laughs> so Not obviously. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? No, she was. And, and not only that, but um, 
Seth's wife was also pretty distressed about what her husband had done, so she joins forces with Osiris or with Isis to help her put the pieces together and bring um, Osiris back long enough for him to foster a child with Isis. And now you get this child being born, and Osiris kind of disappears and becomes the god of the underworld. And, and he's recognized as this great god, and kingship is with him. But now that he's gone, Seth is king, and, and now you have Isis with a new child, and his name is Horus. And Seth, obviously not happy about the idea of Horus being there, because that presents another potential challenge to the throne. And, and let me just read to you a couple passages about Horus from the Horus and Seth story. And I'm trying to just summarize most of this. I won't, I won't bore you to death with a lot of reading, but here's, here, here's according to one version. Seth was ranging about looking for Horus when he was a child in his birthplace of Chemis. His mother hid him in a papyrus thicket, and the coverlet of the Nephethes was over him. And she hid him as the royal child who was in the papyrus thicket. And as his name, Anubis, came into being, and Methel Emi Wet became his cult image. And in another version, he was sailing about in a boat of papyrus. And Isis said to Thoth, let me see my son who is hidden in the marshes. Thoth said, see him. And Isis said, is that him? And that is how the name Anubis came into being, a name which on account is given to every royal child. So you've got, you've got this boy who is hidden in a boat in the water among the papyrus reeds. And he's going to present a challenge to the throne, but not immediately, much later on after he's matured. Uh, one more from the Horace and Seth story. To, peace, uh, to escape the wrath of Seth, Isis fled to the swamps of the delta. There she gave birth to a boy, Horus. Isis suckled the child in solitude. No one knew where. The goddess of Butu, protectress of the delta, cared for her. During his infancy, Horus was subject to attacks of venomous snakes, scorpions, and disease, from which, um, from which only the magical powers of Isis could defend him. Horus grew and flourished in seclusion, and when his arm was strong, he fought against Seth. So this, this boy who was put into an ark and, and hid among the papyrus, the reeds, in the Nile and then was suckled in private. Now, if you look, and maybe you want to do this real quick, if you look online, um, Isis and Horus, just, just do a search, and what you'll see is Isis is a mother nursing her child. That, that It's a statue, it's an image, it's a very important part of the history. And just as he had to fight with snakes and scorpions, if you look at Horus Stella's, uh, Horus is often engraven with his in his hand holding the tails of snakes. So I'm, I'm trying to set the stage because this is what God is going to be doing when he comes and talks to the Egyptians. He is going to do it in their language with their customs. Moses is this boy who was hid in the marshes in this ark, and, and he is the one that's grabbing the snake by the tail, as we saw in this last one. And, and a lot of the miracles that you're going to be seeing are miracles that that the Egyptians understand that are part of their mythology, part of their, their backstory. So when Horus gets old enough, he challenges Seth for the throne and they have a series of what's the, what's the contests, competitions where they, they have to go head to head. And, and Seth is usually cheating in this deal. Uh, but in the end, it, it, it's almost kind of a tie. 
And, and because it's a tie, they divide Egypt into two kingdoms. You have Upper Egypt and you have Lower Egypt. And these two gods become very significant and important in, in, in this rule. And the, the word Mitzrayim itself, the Hebrew word for Egypt, is the dual ending, the A-I-M, Mitzrayim. It is the, the land of the two lands. So if you look at the crown of Pharaoh, it's two crowns. He has the crown of Upper Egypt that he wears in connection with the crown of Lower Egypt. So the, the, the crown is a two-crown crown for these two lands, and you have these two gods. And that's what we're setting the stage for as Moses is coming back, and these plagues are going to be like the series of challenges between these two gods establishing legitimacy to rule. Moses is going to be established as as, as this having divine right to rule. Now, Osiris, his image became the Nile, the river. And when you notice, a lot of these miracles are going to involve the water, the river, the Nile. And, and there's some symbolism there showing that in the end, when, when the gods couldn't figure out who was supposed to rule, because Horus would, would kind of win, Seth would cheat a little bit. Um, it, it got to the point where Isis stepped in, helped trapped Seth, and then at the end, she felt bad, and she let Seth go, and then Horace was enraged at his mom that, that, that she would let him go, and, and it kind of comes into a draw at the end of the deal, and the gods say, who should rule? And then finally, Osiris comes and, and says, obviously, I ruled. I, I, kingship was with me. I am the one that needs to make this decision, and, and he decides that, that Horace has the, the right to rule. Anyways, that's, that's kind of the back plate, the back story to give you an Egyptian perspective because God's coming in and he's going to speak to them in a way that they understand to help make this clear and understand that, that Hebrews here have a right to rule. They have a right to their nation and, and this is divine and this is God's will and this is what they, they need to do and Moses is justified in taking those people out and kind of splitting this into two nations, the Egypts and the Hebrews as they're departing out of out of there. How does that sound? Uh, complicated. It does, does sound a bit complicated, doesn't it? But I think, I've, I think I'm with you. I think I've been able to keep up. Okay. Let's go to the very first miracle then as as well. Hold on, I got the first miracle. You're on it? Because but it might not be the same first miracle you're talking about. I think it is. The first miracle that I'm talking about is that somehow a Hebrew child randomly showed up into the uh into Pharaoh's house and everybody just accepted the fact that just this random Hebrew child <laughs> was now just part of the family. No context, not only part of the family, but like uh, in line to be a ruler. That's the first miracle, Jason. Can you explain that miracle? Uh, yeah, that's an incredible one, right? I, I mean, that's it's. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Uh, but again, it's kind of like this Horus guy. Like, how how did he show up when Osiris was dead and and Isis wasn't? You know, but he he gets hidden and he's this this little back character that that doesn't show up until much later when he's old enough to challenge his dad. But you're just telling me that at no point does anybody question, question. hey, um, our daughter has this new baby, and she <laughs> wasn't even pregnant, and he's clearly not one of us. Okay, cool, man, no sweat. 
Nothing? Jason, is there any context you can give us to this? Because I know I'm not the only one that has this question. Well, and it's 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 kind of cool when you don't have parents, apparently, in mythology. When you look at Sargon, the king of Akkad. Oh, I thought that was the big eye from Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, no, that's Sauron. Oh, okay. Continue. Sargon with a G. Okay. Because he's a G. Yeah. <laughs> Sargon the Great am I. Thank you. Says. Hold on. Thank you for giving me a fantastic point to splice in 90s hip hop. Oh, dear. Okay. Continue. So, <laughs> his, his narrative is also similar to Moses in that and that he escaped death by being put into this this basket and and he comes out of the water and and nobody knows who his parents are but it's it's this idea if you don't have parents if you just kind of show up out of nowhere the miraculous birth yeah the miraculous birth is is that implied you're a son of god and okay. see for egypt ra ramses is the son of ra they they always wanted to claim kingship by being a divine heir a son of God, and, and through that you have the right. Okay. And you'll see it in Greek mythology in several stories, this idea the son of Poseidon uh, gets put out into this boat and, and, and he's pulled out of the water, it's similar again to this Moses story, and who is his parents? His, his dad is a god. And so this idea that particularly if you look at it, the demigods in Greek mythology, the idea that it's half mortal, half god, and I think it's setting the stage for Christ when he is going to come because, yes, he has this miraculous birth and his wife, uh, his wife, where, where am I going? His mother is obviously mortal, but who is the, who's the father? Yeah. And he actually does have this divine father, but it, it's this story that's setting this precursor, this type and shadow played throughout history over and over to get different themes. Okay. And while that might explain it symbolically, in a very real sense, Nate, what what in the world? You, you your daughter has this this boy that she's adopted from the Hebrews, and and are you okay with that? For whatever reason, it seems like they were okay. It's a good question. Unfortunately, I don't have it. All right, well answer. then, that's the first miracle. Okay, what's the second miracle? <laughs> what's the second first miracle? When they're coming back, Moses and Aaron, and and so God tells. Moses, in a few cases, in a few places, says, I am going to make you a god, and I am going to make Aaron a prophet. So you speak to Aaron, and then Aaron will speak to to Pharaoh. And if you're going to be speaking to Pharaoh, you should do so on equal terms. When you look at politics. If, if you have an ambassador come to your country and you have an ambassador meet them, you, you meet on equal levels. If you have the president come in from another country, then typically you want the president to meet them and have that conversation. You don't send the vice president or, or another representative or ambassador. You try to meet them on equal terms. If Pharaoh has deified himself in terms of a god and God says to Moses, okay, I'm going to temporarily exalt you to status of God and then you speak the word to Aaron as if he is your prophet so that you're on equal footing as you present this message, your case, to Pharaoh and argue this. So you, so you have this temporary exaltation, if you will. And, and, it, and the order, the hierarchy is God, prophet, and then priest. And Aaron is the priest, but he is now exalted to the, this prophetic role. When they go there, he tells Aaron, and 
and Moses tells him, cast your, your stick upon the ground and it's going to turn into a serpent. At least he gives him a little bit of a heads up this time. He's not just saying, throw it on the ground and see what happens and then laughing when, when it scares him <laughs> to death. But he tells him it'll turn into a serpent. But here's the cool thing. The word that they use for serpent in this case is different from the word that they used back on the mount in Horeb when Moses cast his, his stick on the ground. Back then, in Nagash, the, the serpent, the snake, it, it, that's what it is. But in here, it's tanin. And, and the tanin is used in a couple instances in the Bible where it's not really a serpent per se. It's, it's a monster, a leviathan. So in Genesis, when it says he created the the great wells is how they interpret on the on the what is it the fourth day of creation when he creates life from the waters he says the great wells, the word for wells is the taninim. And later in Isaiah, when he says he refers to Leviathan and the Lord slaying Leviathan, this this monster of chaos. And if you go to some of these creation myths. You go to the the Babylonian epic or the the hit the Canaanites. They 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 believe that chaos is taking the form of this massive sea creature, sea monster, and that God has to slay the sea monster and take the body and organize it. Some out of the chaos, life can begin. Anyhow, this tanin is used in in the case for who hath wounded the dragon in Isaiah, and that dragon is the Tanim. And he says Leviathan, and that's the Tanim, and the sea monsters in creation. So that's the word that's used here. It's not the Hebrew word for snake. This is this is a sea monster or a river monster. And in some cases, people look at that and interpret it as crocodile because you're in the, the Egyptian area and the Nile, you have the crocodiles as the monsters that coming out of the water there. I don't, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. When you go to Egyptian mythology, there is a story that, so Ra is the sun god, and he travels in the sky from east to west, and then as he goes down in the west in the mountains, let me just read to you a summary statement from the myth about this dragon serpent that they had. It says, quote, when the boat of the sun entered the western darkness at evening, it faced the peril of a serpent or dragon, which might destroy the sun. Then it was the function of the god Seth to repel the beast so that the sun might cross the underworld by night and be reborn in the morning. In like manner, man should survive death and be reborn. Hmm. So this serpent that they're creating is not just an ordinary snake. They use a different word in Hebrew here. It's a dragon or serpent connected with this idea of this monstrous dragon that's connected with the gods and creation. So when... The magic people, is, is they say magic, or, or, or I'm not sure, is that the word they use? It, it should probably be translated priest. When the Egyptian priests do the same miracle, they're putting uh, their sticks on the ground, they're turning into these serpents, but Aaron's eats all of theirs up, and then he can grab it and it turns back into, so this is putting them in the role kind of like God, Seth, and saying, we control the serpent that has control over death and life and resurrection. And it's Christ, ultimately. This is the, these people are representing, I am who I am, the, the great Lord. And he is saying, you have a God that does this, I do that. You have a God that does this, I do that. He is taking on 
all of the gods at once in this great god war, if you will, and saying, I am the one that has power over life and death. I am the one through which resurrection is possible. And and that's the first clear message to Pharaoh saying this is what's going to happen. After the miracle, it says, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's what it says in the English. Literally, that's what it says in the Hebrew. Hmm. And and it says, and he, maybe not hardened, resolved, made firm, strengthened. It's chazach, to make strong. And then it, it says the heart of Pharaoh. What it doesn't say is who he is. In the creation, in, in the Bible in Hebrew, it says, Vayomer Elohim, and he said, Elohim Yehior, let there be light. The, the who says it always comes right there after the verb, and he said, Elohim, so, and God said. In this case, and he hardened, Yechzach, um, Lev, Pharaoh, so he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It never says who hardens the heart of Pharaoh. It's blank. It doesn't say, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it just says, and he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Okay, so who's he? He is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. Joseph Smith in his translation gets this one spot on. And and it's not that his translation is translating, but he's looking at it and trying to add context to, to, to what this means. And the reason why I say this is right, and this is how it should be read, when you look at God speaking to Moses right before he sends him, he says, and I will make... Pharaoh's heart heavy. I will make it burdened, troubled. So when you look at what's happening with the heart, it's not burdening, it's not troubling, it's not getting weighty, it's not getting heavy, it's being firmed and resolved. And you think about it, I think about this almost as a weightlifting analogy. When you're making it heavy and then you're trying to strengthen against it, you have two opposing forces. Pharaoh is stealing his heart against preparing against God. God keeps trying to trouble it and make it heavy and break it down, and Pharaoh, in opposition, is stealing his heart and resolving in his mind, I'm going to do this no matter how much it troubles my heart to try to get past that that troubling feeling that God is sending to him. That's how I read what's happening with Pharaoh's heart throughout these stories. Okay. It makes a lot more sense than God's trying to get Pharaoh sure. to not let his people go yep. when all along God's trying to get him yep. to, to let him go. Let's keep going. Yeah, so that's that's the story of, of the first miracle. The next miracle we get into the Nile, and the river is turned to blood. And gross. It, it, is, it, is, it is gross. And you have algae blooms that happen. It, it could be literally turned to blood or... In cases where things like this happen, we've we've seen it here in Utah Lake even. And when there's enough algae... No, that's real blood in Utah Lake. That, that lake's <laughs> disgusting too. And it could actually have been... Uh, re- All the real, bodies, dude. Real blood in... So there's an Egyptian text from this time period that describes all of the things that happened. It's amazing. Okay. It's it's called the Admonition of Ipuwer. And Ipuwer... Is, is calling out Egypt for all of their wickedness and saying, this is what, look what you have brought upon us. And they talk about the Nile being turned to blood. And they'll even talk about the dead children and, and from, from the last, what, what's the, the last plague, the oh, last yeah. challenge, the last, you know, part of this contest, if Curse. you will. Yeah. Curse. 
It, 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 it's, it's fascinating to see a third-party account from the Egyptians describe the aftermath and the, and the, the woe. And he says, because the people are so distraught, men are committing suicide by walking into the Nile and having the crocodiles eat them up. Ooh. So whether it was real blood at the first or you just have so much death in the Nile that eventually it does literally turn to blood. I mean, there's, they, they talk about the, the, the Nile being turned to blood in this, in this account. And you follow these plagues in order, and, and they, from a scientific perspective, it makes a lot of sense. If, if something happens with the water, the very first creatures that are going to be affected are your amphibians that, that have the skin that's very sensitive that absorbs it. Usually in a habitat, if, if your amphibians, they're the first ones to go. They're the first ones that are negatively impacted by it, and it's a warning sign that other things are going to start following. And you have the, fl- the frogs, and you have death, and, and, and the things associated with that are going to follow with the, li- the, the lice and the, the disease and the further death. And, and, and so you have, I'm not going to spend too much time going into every one of these miracles, but I, I do find it interesting that when it talks about the priests of Pharaoh not being able to stand before Moses, and the reason why they can't stand is because there's boils or because there's lice. Why that's significant is the Egyptians are very similar to the Hebrews. Just as the Egyptians thought it was an abomination to eat with the Hebrews, to mix with them, they, they had very similar rites, and the priesthood for them, the reason why, according to Herodotus, a Greek historian, the reason why the Egyptian priest would shave their head was because they viewed lice as, as very unclean, and they didn't want to even have, the priest had to be clean. They couldn't have lice, and so they had to shave their head to avoid that uncleanliness. And then they also had to be without blemish, just like the high priest in Israel's. We're going to get down there in the law of Moses later on. The high priest had to not have any imperfections. He couldn't have boils. So the things that are happening in these plagues are ritually disqualifying these priests from their service in Pharaoh's court. They cannot stand before Moses because they've been ritually marked unclean. So kind of something a little interesting there. There's a couple of texts also from the aftermath that we can see. The pyramid text from the Pyramid of Unus at Saqqara says, It is the king who will be judged with him whose name is hidden on that day of the slaying of the firstborn. And then we have another coffin text that says, I am he who will be judged with him whose name is hidden on the night of the slaying of the firstborn. So you can see this, the aftermath in, in, the, in the text of the Ipuwer and these coffin texts, these funerary texts. You can see that there was this, this God whose name cannot be revealed who, who caused this destruction among the people as kind of this divine punishment. So that's the context, the story, uh, uh, trying to maybe help you understand why it was happening and how it relates to the people and, and why that seemed to speak their language. Sweet. L- let's talk about the Passover, because I, I think the Passover is it's one the of the meat, most... It's the meat and potatoes of this, this lesson. Absolutely. So the last 
competition, the last event, and, and this one is, is a true tragedy, and, and I don't want to oversimplify this, and, and I've been asked the question, why is it that God slew the children? What, 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 what guilt do the children have? And, and just all the, all the firstborn of the Egyptians, all the firstborn of their cattle, that's a hard question to answer, and I'm not God. I, I can't answer for him. It it's I'm not sure. It it is something that I don't want to take lightly. It is something that is extremely tragic and, and obviously had a, a significant impact on Pharaoh. Maybe from a political standpoint, as this nation is first coming out of Egypt and forming, one, this is what the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people forced on the Hebrew people and making them throw their sons in the Nile. And, and they had a time where they were more weak and, and they took advantage of them. And, and tit for tat judgment, I don't know, it's coming right back around to the Egyptians now. But as this nation is going to be fleeing and going through the Dead Sea and the army gets destroyed through the, through the, the sea and they go up into the land of Canaan, and they're fighting all of these people, they can't worry about the Egyptians coming up behind them and challenging them from behind. Maybe it's important that there's this generational gap where these young men are missing to being able to to, to challenge the, the Hebrews when they're first creating a nation and they're vulnerable and trying to carve out all their land. So I, I don't have the answer, but it it happens. And how it happens... God tells Moses that he needs to take a lamb, each family needs to take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb. And it needs to be an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb. And they need to be careful not to break a single bone. And they need to serve the lamb with bitter herbs. And and they eat it in the night. And then the following day, or during the night, the angel of death is going to come. They take the blood from the lamb and they stain the post, the wooden post that rise up and across the top and back down of their door, their entry. And the angel of death, as he comes, any house that is marked with blood, he passes over and doesn't slay the firstborn in there. And because Israel is spared the firstborn, God's going to look at this and say, you know what? The firstborn is my offering, what you should be sacrificing to me. I took it from the Egyptians. You still owe me because we spared the firstborn. So instead of sacrificing your firstborn, what we're going to do is take the whole house of Levi and they're going to take the stead of the firstborn. We're going to consecrate them and we're going to offer them not to death, but in service in life, they will be your priests. They will be your offering to me to compensate for the way that I saved you by passing over you in that night. And, and in is born this priesthood order for the, the, the Hebrews, where it's not just Moses and Aaron anymore. We have a whole line of priests to serve the people as they come out of Israel. The significance of this event, let's fast forward to the time of Christ, because he was considered the lamb. As we look at Isaiah, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He was unblemished and perfect in, in the way he lived his life. And also, ritually, he, he was very clean at the time he was offered up in Jerusalem. Right as he comes back into Jerusalem at this time, Lazarus, his, his friend, had passed away. And it's unique how he handles that situation because Lazarus is inside of a tomb 
And Christ being the one who washes the feet of his disciples, who's never one to have somebody serve him, but always quick to serve everyone else, asks others to roll the stone away from the door of Lazarus's tomb. And instead of going in and grabbing Lazarus and bringing him from the dead, as he had done times before in his ministry, he calls out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. What is this new aversion to work? Christ, and if you look at the law of Moses and what's going to be established, you cannot be in the same room as a corpse or it makes you ritually unclean. You can't touch a corpse. So when Christ, when Lazarus comes forth, all wrapped in the burial cloth, he asks others to unshroud him. So he's, he's maintaining his ritual purity, cleanliness, even coming up to the point where he's going to be crucified. And when he goes into this atonement, then he becomes ritually unclean by bringing our sins upon him. So he was the sacrifice that blemished himself, kind of like this lamb. And when he's on the cross to speed things up. And why do they have to speed things up? The Jews tell him for on the morrow is the Sabbath. And it also says that the time to prepare the mill, so as the sun was about to set, they needed to go back and prepare their mill. What mill are they preparing for? Because they did not crucify Christ on a, on a Friday, if on the Saturday was the Sabbath and on Sunday he raises, because you don't get three days and three nights. At best, if he dies Friday, so we can count Friday, Saturday you can count, and then Sunday he rises in the morning, how does how does that count as a third day? Maybe you can count as a third day, but then Friday night, Saturday night, you only have two nights. So are they wrong when they say Christ was, was dead for three days and three nights? Or consider this, Passover is considered a Sabbath. If Passover is happening on a Friday and Christ is crucified on a Thursday, then Thursday night you have to prepare the Passover meal, the night before they're going to be going free. And the Passover meal is what is going to, is commemorating the liberation of the people of Israel. Because Christ is going to die, all of the people get to go free. The captive gets to get set free. So when Christ is on the cross on a Thursday they say we have to speed this up so that we can go prepare for it's the time of preparation. We need to go prepare our meals. They're going to prepare the Passover meal that night because Friday's going to be the Passover, a Sabbath. Saturday is going to be your Sabbath because that's the Jewish Sabbath. And then on the third day, on Sunday, he rises after three nights now, you have a new Sabbath. And this is unique in history. You have three Sabbaths in a row, almost a Sabbath for each each God, if you will. There's a lot of power in that, that imagery. And I find the imagery fascinating that on that very night of his death, observant Jews in Jerusalem are slaying a lamb at the same time that he is being slain. And one of Christ's hardest teachings that got people to stop following him is when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to live again, saying that he is going to be this Passover lamb and talking about the symbolism of the sacrament. And people had a hard time understanding it. But there they are that night eating the flesh of a lamb while the lamb of God is, is, is killed before them in preparation for this meal. And the meal is supposed to be served with bitter herbs. And while Christ is on the cross and thirst, they take 
a, a sponge and dip it in gall and bitterness, and they bring it to his lips. He is a lamb served with bitterness. And the prophecy that not one bone will be broken in the lamb in the Passover meal preparation, as they have to speed things up so that they can start observing the Passover and prepare their meal and slay their lamb, they break the legs of the person on the left and the right, the, the two people, I, I can't say that necessarily left and right, sorry. The people that are crucified with him, they're still alive. They, they break their legs, legs to speed up the process, but Christ himself had already given up the ghost and not a single bone of his body had to be broken to speed things up. And so this event that is happening almost 2,000 years before Christ comes details the very day of his death, that he's going to be slain, that they're going to serve him with bitterness, the bitter herb, and they're going to not break a single bone of his body. All of these fine details prophesied out thousands of years before he even came. And what traditions do we know go back that long? The Passover is the oldest observed religious tradition that these people every single year remember and commemorate and hold to. And, and yet it pointed in such fine detail to what was going to happen with Christ 2,000 years later. I, I find that the most amazing, greatest prophecy of all scriptures. You were right. You fulfilled that bold statement. It's, it's incredible agree, to by me. The way. That is incredible. You also have other little details, obviously, the blood on the post, right? You have the cross that he's hanging from and the blood that goes across the... I'm assuming the wooden posts of their doorways. Absolutely, you have you have subtle little things like that too. And yeah, his his blood stained the vertical horizontal posts of the cross as he's nailed to it. Yep. as his back is scourged, as he's wearing a crown of a, a crown of thorns, and yet they're marking the post and the and the symbolism there. We've talked about the firstborn so many times. In, in the scriptures up to this point, right? And and the younger one not necessarily being the firstborn yet becoming the firstborn in this idea that here the firstborn is being sacrificed, that the firstborn might be saved, that we might be preserved through this, and that the captive might be set free. Because not only are you saving the firstborn this night, but this single event was the one that broke Pharaoh's heart to the point where he couldn't hold back anymore, and Israel went free. Yep. It's interesting, too, the the firstborn up to this point in the scriptures always gets all the awesome stuff. And there's, there's definitely responsibility that comes with that, but still there's like this really great, um, there's a lot of really amazing things with it. This is almost like the, this is almost like, well, here's what that costs also to be the firstborn. Like your life is going to be on the line tonight. You know, like you, you, you're, you, here's, here's now you needing to fulfill the full responsibility of your birthright. And, and Christ basically takes that upon himself too, though. He takes that burden as well. Yeah. Great stuff. What else we got? That's, uh, that's all I got. That's Nate. a fantastic way to finish, to be totally honest with you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're, that, that we can, we can finish on such a, an amazing high note. Thank you. Um, fantastic. What are we talking about next week? You know, and this is a little bit hard because next week, I believe, is a, a special Easter message. We take a break from the Old Testament to present an Easter message, and uh, 
this this I I it's going to be interesting because how do you top an Easter message greater than the Passover exactly. itself? Yeah, it's true. So we'll try. We'll we'll see what we can put together. Well, this I think maybe this even too sets it up again. Like I know that I know that we've we've even had some conversations, and I've I've been in some lessons that you've taught where where we've gone even more into the to the prophecies and the symbolisms and and um, various things of the the full atonement process. And so I think, I mean, I think next week's going to be fantastic, but I, I, I know that we'll, we'll have plenty of good, good stuff for you next week too. Yep. All right. Um, if that is all that we've got for today, again, everybody, thank you for listening. We always appreciate your comments. We appreciate your emails. Um, we appreciate your feedback. Um, if you want to get a hold of us or ask us any questions, it is hi at weeklydeepdive.com. And thank you again for listening. Until next week, see ya.